If you could open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias al Evangelio según Marcos, capítulo 14, versículos 1 a 11. We're in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for almost a year, believe it or not. This month marks a year. And you know what? I've preached through books for a year or more before. And usually by the end of the book, we're starting to, starting to get a little bit, dare I say, tired. I'm ready for something new, but I don't know about you, but in the Gospel of Mark, that has not happened. If anything, as we, as we journey toward the cross, the anticipation increases, the, the intensity deepens, the drama thickens as we move inexorably toward the goal of this whole gospel. And Mark here in chapter 14, he, he, he slows down. Mark is noted for his fast pace. You hear immediately they did, did this, and then immediately that happened, and then immediately this happened throughout the whole first 12 chapters. And then 13, he starts to slow down. And then 14, 14 covers 36 hours between 14 and 16 slows down and today in this passage Jesus takes one more step toward the cross so with that would you read in Mark chapter 14 beginning in verse 1 it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. 
and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as Mark slows down to recount this, this moment, I pray that we, we would capture what you would have us to capture. Would you capture us by your spirit with the love of Jesus? Would we become captivated today? Would we behold him and treasure him because of what we read and what we hear today? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Jesus has left the temple. He'd been in the temple for a good long while, and Mark recounted much of what happened in the temple. And he leaves the temple, and he exits Jerusalem, and he goes to this town called Bethany. And he goes to a house owned by a man named Simon the leper. And the moment that occurs here is a holy moment. A woman pours an expensive flask of oil over Jesus' head. And this moment teaches us about who Jesus is, and it is intended as an encouragement to spur us on. But that's not all. This is another Markin sandwich. And if you've been with us for a period of time, you will know that a Markin sandwich is something that occurs fairly regularly in Mark. A Markin sandwich, if you don't know what it is, is a story that Mark recounts that is sandwiched at the beginning and the end with different content, with a different story. And the content that's at the beginning and the end of this story are verses 1 through 2 and verses 10 and 11, which tell us of the plotting of the chief priests and the beginning of the betrayal of Judas, of Jesus. And while the middle content is an encouragement to us, what stands on the outside is a warning to us. A warning, among other things, against greed. But this warning against greed, it is contrasted. It's a sharp contrast to the encouragement to teach us one unified lesson. And that one unified lesson that this this passage, these 11 verses teach us, is that people captivated by Jesus are greedy for Jesus. People who are captivated by Jesus are greedy for Jesus. People captivated by the the love of Jesus have intense desires, not for money, not for things of the world, but for him. And, And like Judas' greed yielded an extreme devotion to money, you might even say an irrational devotion to money, the woman's heart had been captivated by Jesus, and it yielded an extreme devotion to him. That's what's going on here. An encouragement and a warning to teach us one thing. So let's start with the encouragement. Let's dive into the middle of the sandwich here and start with the encouragement. And let's not just talk about this scene. Let's step into this scene. Again, don't miss this. Jesus is mere hours from the cross. He doesn't have time uh, for, for, for meaningless things. Mark doesn't write about trivial matters at this point in Jesus' ministry. So whatever happens here must be incredibly 
important. How important is it? Look at verse 9. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done that's recounted before this will be told in memory of her. So that promise is being fulfilled today. So important is it that 2,000 years later, we're still talking about what happened in that room in the house of Simon the leper. So in the town of Bethany. And just, just think about it. This guy's name is Simon the leper. Leprosy was a terrible, terrible skin disease that proved fatal oftentimes. We don't know much about this guy except that he is a leper. He had spent so much of his life with the awful skin disease that he had become known by that skin disease. Talk about ignominy. Talk about shame. To be defined by your malady. To be defined by your illness. It's how people know you. But we know that he no longer had leprosy. How do we know that? Because in, he's in a room of 15 to 20 people in this scene. And it was against the Mosaic law for lepers to hold common company with people. This guy had been cleansed. How do you think he'd been cleansed? Well, he's sitting with Jesus. He was probably cleansed by Jesus. He may have been the leper of Mark chapter 1, verse 42, who Jesus cleansed and became a disciple of Jesus. There's also a woman in the house, and it's interesting. Mark does not name her. He just says, and a woman came. The Apostle John names her in John chapter 12, verse 3, and says, this is Mary. Mary, Mary the sister of Martha. Martha, who kept very busy. Mary, also the sister of Lazarus, who just a couple days before was dead. And Martha and Mary and Lazarus, they're probably all in the house together. The whole family is probably there. The disciples are also there. These disciples who had witnessed every expression, every demonstration of Jesus' divine power and authority and love, uh, sitting next to, to Simon who had been healed by Jesus, sitting next to Lazarus who was alive. And Mary had seen all of this. She had seen Jesus weep before Lazarus too. She had seen Jesus mercifully raise her brother. She had seen Jesus act with divine love toward the outcasts, toward the outsiders, toward the weak. What an audience. <laughs> People who had witnessed him and deeply, personally affected by the power and love of Jesus. And they're all reclining at table together. Okay, probably having, having a meal. And Mary slowly and quietly approaches Jesus. And she has a small flask in her hands. The flask is made of an expensive stone called alabaster. It's a, it's a fragile, soft stone. And in this flask is a few ounces, just, just a few ounces of an extremely rare oil called nard. And these few ounces are worth at least 300 denarii. 
which is a year's wages. Think roughly $50,000 in today's terms. Okay? Everyone in the room recognizes it. It's like somebody walking out into the middle of a dinner party with a family heirloom, a three-carat diamond in their hands. Nobody's just going to look at that and go, well, that's just a pebble you found out in the front yard. No, they're going to go, what, what, what are you doing carrying that? Mary didn't just casually own a flask of nard. This was probably her most priceless possession. There was probably nothing she owned that was more costly than this. And everybody noticed it. They said, Mary, what are you doing carrying that? And she stops before Jesus and she breaks the neck of the flask and she pours its contents over Jesus' head. And listen, we, we read this with wonder and solemnity, but that's because we're reading it from Mark's perspective and we're getting what Mark is wanting us to get. But the disciples had a different perspective. Imagine, imagine that you're, you're enjoying a, a, a nice early winter evening around the fire with some friends and you're at one of your friend's house and she goes, ah, hold on, I'm going to be back in just a second. So she goes into her house and she comes back outside and she's carrying a trash bag full of cash. Just stacks and stacks and stacks of $100 bills. And she sits down next to you, next to the fire, puts the trash bag down, pulls out a stack, throws it in the fire. And you go, what? She pulls out another, throws it in the fire, pulls out another, throws it in the fire, another, throws it in the fire. Another throws it in the fire, and you're all sitting there aghast. What are you doing? What, what are you doing? Until finally, it's all gone. She burned her whole life savings, and you go, you, that could have been your retirement. You, 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 could have lay, you could have laid up a nest egg for your kids. You could have given all that to charity. Are you kidding? It's exactly what the disciples were thinking. They're thinking, what a waste. Are you kidding me? They say in verse 44, 4 and 5, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? This could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Mary wasn't throwing dollars into a fire, though. Once again, the disciples faithfully play the role of dopes. They don't get it. They don't get what's going on. They don't see what Mary sees. They see the value of the money. That's all they see. That is what is precious in their eyes, is the money. Last year in Tennessee, the, the basketball coach of Halls High School pulled the team manager, a senior named Maddox with Down syndrome, who loved basketball. Pulled him to the center of the locker room and announced in front of the rest of the team that he would be in the starting lineup that night. The opposing team caught wind of it, and while Maddox was on the court, everybody from both teams worked together to give Maddox the game of his life. He even scored the last two points of the game. 
was a man named Richard Hoyt who raised a son named Rick, and Rick was born with cerebral palsy. Rick had never walked a day in his life and never would walk a day in his life, didn't have the use of his arms or his legs. But one day, Richard pushed Rick in a wheelchair in a 5K, and Rick told his dad that evening, he said, Dad, I forget about my disease when you run with me. So over the next 30 years, Richard pushed his son in over a thousand triathlons, marathons, and Ironmans. Susanna Spurgeon, wife of famous preacher Charles Spurgeon, she devoted her life to supporting her husband during his ministry. Through Charles' intense bouts of depression, through his severe sicknesses, and even after his death, she was the driving force behind the publication of his books and his sermons. What do they all have in common? Richard Hoyt, the two basketball teams, Susanna Spurgeon, Mary. They all could have been greedy for something else. They all could have been greedy for something else. Something that would have personally benefited them. They all had that option. The basketball team could have been greedy for a win, which, which is the common standard. That's why you play basketball, to win, right? Richard Hoyt could have been greedy for a life unhindered by a disabled son. Gosh, his life could have been a lot easier. Susanna Spurgeon could have, could have been greedy for a life on her own terms. For her own glory, for her own notoriety. But none of them were. Why? Why were they not captivated by, by the, the carrot of what lay before them? Because they were captivated by something else. They were captivated by something more precious. The basketball teams realized to give this this teammate, this manager, this opportunity to play this game, it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience for him. That is precious. Susanna Spurgeon, no, she, she knew that her husband's ministry would, would, would extend through generations. That is precious. Richard Hoyt knew that he had a chance to make his son's life enjoyable. Mary, Mary saw the preciousness of the love of Jesus, and she was captivated by it. There was nothing that captivated her more than the love of Jesus. And friends, there is nothing in the world that is more captivating than the love of Jesus. What these other people were captivated by even pales in comparison to what Mary was captivated by. Mary had seen the love of Jesus for her, for her brother, for Simon, for, for his disciples, and it captivated her like nothing else. And while, Jesus, or, and while Judas and the disciples scolded her for her waste, verse 6, Jesus says, she's done a beautiful thing to me. 
Listen to those tender words of Jesus. She's done a beautiful thing to me. Why, why is it beautiful? The, the, the beauty of Mary's gift is in its extravagance. It reflected the preciousness of Christ. She saw in Jesus what is most precious and she said, I'm going to give something that reflects what I see in him. And Jesus says, that is beautiful. And she knew, as Jesus confirms in in verse 7, that that they would not have that precious treasure for very much longer. She understood what apparently nobody else had understood. Look at verse 8, the end of verse 8. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Well, the shadow of the cross begins to loom even larger than before. Oil like nard, it was actually customarily poured over bodies. It was customarily poured over dead bodies. It was poured over dead bodies to combat the stink of decay. What... what the women who went to the tomb after Jesus' death went to do to cover his body in spices and oils. But Mary takes her flask of oil, pours it over Jesus two days before his death. Listen, she had heard him predict his death and she believed him. That's why she gave him this gift. Ray Stedman comments that It is interesting how many times Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die, and none of them believed him. Mary did. She believed him, and she grieved his death before his death. She believed that he was moving inexorably toward his death and burial. Now pause. Just just stop and, and think with me of how this affected Jesus. He says she had done a beautiful thing. Not for me. She had not done broadly a beautiful thing. He says she's done a beautiful thing to me. Again, Ray Stedman helps us. He says Jesus knew her motives and he was comforted by her love. How she ministered to his spirit by this simple act of extravagant love. Just think about Jesus' life in his immediate past and his immediate future. He had been constantly, constantly opposed by religious leaders who were trying to kill him and doing everything they could to turn Rome and the entirety of the Jewish people against him. He was constantly in the presence of of his disciples, these men whom he loved, who just didn't get much of anything he said and who were consistently driven by their own vainglory and their own prideful ambition. And then you look into his immediate future, and he's right on the threshold of betrayal, which we see at the very end of this passage. And shortly after betrayal, abandonment by everybody else. Everybody else he has left close in his life runs and leaves him. But here, right now in chapter 14, you have this woman, Mary, who does this beautiful thing for him. Think of how, 
think of how Mary ministered to the soul of the Savior in that moment. How it brought pleasure and comfort to him. Mary had been captured by her Savior's love, and she, she became greedy for his glory and for his pleasure, and it produced extravagant devotion by her, and it was precious and beautiful to Jesus. Have you been captivated by his love? I'm asking you directly, have you been captivated by the love of Jesus? Listen, we see the cross in hindsight. Mary didn't even know. She knew he was going to die. She didn't know what his death represented. She didn't fully get it yet because nobody could get it yet. That The mystery of the gospel hadn't been revealed. We see it all. How much more should we be captivated by the love of Jesus? And if you have been captivated by his love, what would it look like for you to become greedy for his glory? greedy for his pleasure what would extravagant devotion look like in your life think about that meditate on that let me give you two quick suggestions two quick suggestions for what that might look like in your life first resist the urge to outrage resist the urge to outrage We live in a moment in time where every day there is a new thing to outrage over. Where where the majority of of people in in our community or our country choose this is the thing we're going to outrage about today and then tomorrow it's something different. And the disciples were outraged by Mary's gift. They said it could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus says, one, There is nothing more precious in all the earth than the Son of God, and you don't see it. And two, there's something something subtly comical about this. This is two, well, I'm going to be gone soon, and when I am gone, be my guest. (laughs) Give to the poor, care for them. He says, whenever you want... Give to the poor. If you really want to, you can do it anytime you want. You could have sold all your possessions long before now and given to the poor. Why is this all of a sudden really important to you now? He calls their bluff. He calls their bluff. He says, guys, this isn't really about your, your intense care for the poor. <laughs> he knew it was really about their greed and even more about their self-righteousness. Because they'd said, if I had that kind of money, <laughs> I wouldn't have wasted it like that. How much does that reflect our hearts when we give in to those, those opportunities for outrage? <laughs> I, wow, I would never act like, like that or those people. <laughs> How could they? Oh, that's, just, that's just terrible. Self-righteous outrage is not an expression of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. It might scratch that self-righteous itch in our hearts, but it's about as effective as the disciples' outrage. 
it misses the point. Instead, so instead of, on one hand, resist the outrage, secondly, do what you can. Do what you can. Look down at verse 8. She has done what she could. I've been thinking about that verse all week, and, <laughs> and I think that's one of, those, one of those words of Jesus that I just want to continue to meditate on. But she did what she could. She has done what she could. Jesus isn't patronizing her. He's not saying, oh, she did what she could. That's nice. It's, that's, that's great. She, she couldn't do much. She did what she could. It's fine. No, no, no. He's saying she couldn't give much, but she gave everything she could. What was within her means to give, she gave it. This resonates with, with the same themes as, as that other unnamed woman in chapter 12 who dropped two copper pennies in the brass receptacles. She gave everything she could. Notice, Mark introduces to us two unnamed women who otherwise would be unremarkable in history whose names and stories are still being proclaimed today because they gave what they could. Even if, even if your everything isn't much in your eyes, it's beautiful to him. Here's the point. At, at worst, we're, we're moved to inaction because we opt instead for false expressions of morality like, like outrage, or we're moved to inaction because because what we can give isn't much, so we give nothing at all. We, we, we look at what we're able to give and go, that's not, that's not that valuable to Jesus. That's not that much in comparison to what he can do or she can give. You may not be able to give Jesus much, but you can give him what you can give him. You, you, you might think, I don't, I don't really have a, a great singing voice. In fact, I have a terrible singing voice, so I'm just not going to sing at all. I, I lead worship sometimes up here on Sundays. Friends, I do not have a good voice. But I have a voice to give, and so do you. You might think, I don't have a big house. All I have is an apartment, so I can't, I can't really do hospitality or invite, invite people over or do ministry in the church in my little apartment because it's just so small. No, no, no. You do what you can. And what you can is beautiful to Jesus. You may not have much time. Maybe you're, maybe you're a young mom and you've got kids running all over the place and you're going, I don't have as much time as I used to and I certainly don't have as much time as I would like to have. But just because you don't have as much time as, as you would like to doesn't mean you should squander the little time that you do have. You may not have much money. You may not be able to provide in one fell swoop the entirety of the church's budget for the year so that we can do ministry for the next year. Oh, but what you can give, that's beautiful to Jesus. You may not think that you have much to offer to a neighbor by way of comfort in suffering. You, you may not think that you have all the right words to say Oh, but you can give something. You can be a source of the comfort and the peace of Jesus to the next person. You can't save every Santa Annan. You can't, you can't save every one of your neighbors on your street. Oh, but you can share the gospel with one of them. She has given what she could. 
And Jesus called that beautiful. Let me ask you this simple question. If you've been captivated by the love of Jesus, what can you give? What can you give in extravagant devotion to Jesus? Remember that the two copper coins was as visible to Jesus as the alabaster flask worth $50,000. It was because both gave what they could. Now, the encouragement is followed by a warning or sandwiched within a warning, if you will. Look at verses 1 and 2. Let's read those again. Now, it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The chief priests and the scribes were becoming desperate. They'd been trying for, for weeks, if not months, if not a few years, to try to trap Jesus, and nothing had worked. And the Passover feast was coming in just a few days. The population of Jerusalem was about to swell by tens of thousands. And if they mistimed this, and if they were too loud about it, there would be an uproar. There would be rioting in the streets. And so they were, they were panicked. They were desperate. They needed to get something done now. And they had to change their tact. They needed some way to do this secretly. Enter Judas. Enter Judas. Verses 10 through 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Immediately after this scene of extravagant love, we're thrust into, the one, into one of the ugliest acts of all of human history. John tells us in, in chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 of his gospel, that Judas was actually the, the treasurer of the group. He was the one who kept the money for the group. And it was Judas who was the most vocal in his opposition against Mary's gift. And it may have been his disgust over Mary's gift, over this waste of money that was the straw that broke the camel's back and let him just go, fine, I'm done with this. He probably thought, I, these money bags could have been filled so much more if Mary had sold that and our savings had increased. And instead, Mary goes out and does something foolish like that. I'm done. Judas was a calculating man. He added the price of the Savior's life into his calculations, and he decided that the price they were offering was right. And the price, the price he accepted was a fraction of what Mary valued a single moment with Jesus as. 300 pieces of silver, a couple thousand dollars. Alan Cole comments, in the Bible, Jesus has no high or patriotic motives. 
Sheer love of money was his downfall. As it has been of many Christians since, whether in rich or poor countries, there's a good reason why Jesus so often warns against love of money. It blinds us from the preciousness of Jesus. Tempting us to think that it is what is most precious. Cole says again, if Judas could not understand Mary's actions, then he would not understand the cross either. If Judas couldn't understand Mary's act of extravagant devotion, then it was impossible for him to understand the cross. If we cannot understand the extravagant devotion of other Christians around us, if we can't understand why why the people around us are, are giving their lives for Jesus, then we haven't understood the cross. If if you look at Mary's sacrifice and you think of it in terms of today's equivalent and you look at somebody next to you in the church and you think of them giving $50,000 and you go, well, that's a bit ridiculous. You haven't understood the cross. Because of the cross, Jesus would give all he could for you. And all that Jesus can give is everything there is. It is his whole life. It is the throne that he vacated to come down to live among us. It is the inheritance that he has received from God the Father. It is the blood that spilled from his veins. It is the righteousness that he achieved in his 33 years of life on this earth. He gave it all on the cross. He gave what he could. And what he could give was everything for you. And in that he has done a beautiful thing. Not just for you, but to you. For those who believe. He's redeemed your life. He's ransomed you from the pit. He's given you a new name. He's given you a heart of flesh in the place of a heart of stone. He has called you son of the living God. He has called you his brother. He's given you his inheritance. He has adopted you. He's given you eternal life. He's done a beautiful thing to you by grace, through faith. Because of that, he's worth you giving every beautiful thing you can to him, not to earn his grace, but because he's already given you everything. That's the point of this passage. The point of this passage is forward looking to the cross, and it says, Jesus has done a beautiful thing to you. For the one reading this passage, Jesus has done a beautiful thing through his cross. And because of what he's done, he's all the more precious to those who found him. Listen, if Jesus isn't precious to us, then there's probably something occupying that small, splay, that, that small space in our hearts that is reserved for that which is most precious to us. And there's only, one, there's only room for one thing in that place in our hearts. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot love both God and money. You can't do both. There's not room in that space in your heart for two things. It's one. And if that space is occupied by something like money, 
then Jesus doesn't occupy that space in your heart. And for those of you who don't know Jesus in a saving way, for those of you who have not confessed Him as Lord over your life, we heard earlier in Mark, in Mark chapter 8, He said whoever would save his life will lose it. Meaning, whoever would hold their own life in that single space of what is most precious to them, that person will lose his life. But, Jesus says, but... <laughs> But whoever loses his life, meaning whoever moves his own life out of the space in that heart for my sake, meaning allowing Jesus to occupy that, that small space reserved for one, will save it. Will save it. Listen, if you, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, you are choosing to keep that which is most precious, whatever it is, and to not have Jesus. You can't crowd them in in the same place, and whoever seeks to, to save his life will lose it. Oh, but whoever seeks to lose his life for Jesus' sake will save it. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you after the service today, or, or Jeff would, or this person sitting next to you. We want Jesus to become your treasure. There's nothing better than, than having Jesus as your treasure. And, and friends, if Jesus isn't precious to you, then, then perhaps you need to lose what is precious to you or, or to offer what is precious to you to Him. Author Ray Ortland says, if you are a Christian but bored, if you are a Christian but bored, maybe you need to lose something. You cannot just add Jesus to an already crowded life. So what do you need to offload so that your heart can feel the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? And do not stop offloading until that sense of privilege in Jesus really starts to percolate. When our hearts thrill to His surpassing worth, the world loses its appeal. He is more precious than your annual income and your savings. He is more precious than all of your possessions combined. He is more precious than all of your accomplishments and all of your greatest dreams and aspirations that you have for life. He's more precious than all of it. Is He that precious to you? Is He that precious to you? If not, what, what is more precious to you than Jesus? Again, really think about that question. What is more precious to you than Jesus? What is occupying that space in your heart that's reserved for what is most precious? Jesus was most precious to Mary. Oh, she is a wonderful example to emulate. And he promises in verse 10, it, or in verse, in verse 9, Truly I say to you, whatever, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. As you read this passage and you hear the sermon, this promise is being fulfilled. It's being actively fulfilled in this very moment. And why did Jesus make this promise? Because extremely 
extravagant devotion is what comes from the heart that has been captured by Jesus' love. People who are captured by Jesus are greedy for Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you that you did not spare your son, but graciously gave him up for us all so that we might know the greatest treasure this world has ever known. We might receive that treasure. I pray that you would, would graciously and mercifully move upon the hearts of anybody here for whom their treasure is something other than Jesus. Would you remove that from their heart? Would you give them the confidence in you to offer that up in service to you and make you their treasure? It's in our name we pray. Amen.